This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Dave Green to the program. How you doing, Dave? Always nice to be along for the ride, Bob. Well, I'm glad to have you on this trip in the Wayback Machine. I'm going to uh, read some of my uh, columns that uh, have recently appeared in the, the Daily Gazette. Uh, the first one, or the first topic, includes not only my work, but also uh, some of the work of uh, a fellow historian, Dan Weaver, who writes a history column uh, for the Amsterdam Recorder. And he did a column about this topic. I don't know if I've mentioned the topic. We're going to talk about the armistice, the end of World War I, uh, which ha- happened 100 years ago this year. The armistice took effect or was signed on, uh, I believe, the 11th hour of the 11th month. Um, in the, well, anyway, and that was signed in France to end World War One. And 100 years ago, and there had been a lot of remembrances of World War One. It seems to me, Dave, that, you know, when we were growing up, I mean, the war that was in everyone's mind was World War Two. And, for example, we've discussed this before, that your your father was in World War Two, became a, a prisoner of war. So I'm sure it was quite close uh, to you as you were growing up. It does seem as though every generation gets a war. Yeah. And World War Two for the United States, was actually a much more all-encompassing war than World War I. In fact, this is in the copy that I put into the last column I did on World War I, that after the war, there was uh, an accounting of how many New York state people had died. I, I don't actually have, have that in, um, you know, in front of me, but... Uh, after the after the war, a, a general, you know, the adjutant general, uh, calculated the number of of deaths from uh, I think they said all causes, which included disease, and disease was a major factor because of um, the the start of the influenza pandemic toward the end of the war. So anyway, to get uh, to a to a point, Montgomery County had approximately seven, between 70 and 80 uh, casualties, deaths during uh, World War One, And Amsterdam alone had somewhere in the 40s. And in World War Two, the casualties in Amsterdam were much harder. I think they were in the, in the hundreds. That's according to uh, probably to Bob uh, Going's book, Where Do We Find Such Men? And also he wrote another book called Honor Roll, which lists all the Amsterdam people who died in the war. But my most recent column uh, spoke of how Amsterdam spread the news on November 11th of 1918 that the war was over. The shrieking of a lone whistle was the first sign of peace in Amsterdam a hundred years ago. It was November 11th, 1918, and the armistice had been signed in France, ending the Great War. The recorder reported other whistles blew and bells rang. Soon the whole city had received the glad tidings. A community service was held that night at Second Presbyterian Church on Church Street. With hostilities over, a train carrying a contingent of about 60 Americans, uh, Americans, but specifically Amsterdamian draftees, you know, pe- people from Amsterdam, 60 of them, were on this train bound for Camp 
Humphreys, Virginia. Once the armistice was signed, the train was stopped in Albany and the men returned home. I'd like to switch gears. I'll go back to uh, my column, uh, the latest column I've written on World War I in a moment. But now I want to bring in some of the information that Dan Weaver uncovered. And I congratulated him on his column uh, because I had known nothing of this uh, information uh, about the war's ending uh, in the Mohawk Valley. Uh, Dan Weaver writes a history column every other week for the recorder of Amsterdam called Hindsight. And Dan says, November 1918 was a time of great joy in Montgomery and Fulton counties. The news that World War I was over actually arrived, he said, on November 8th. When the news reached Fort Plain, church bells rang, factory whistles blew, and the town clock struck 100 times. All business ceased, and a parade was put together in a short time. According to a recorder article, such a thing as dignity was unknown for the marchers. They cheered lustily and were cheered in return by those unable to join the demonstration. Girls from the Bailey Knitting Mills led the parade, which included Civil War veterans. It lasted for two hours. And Dan also writes, In Fonda, bells rang, whistles blew, cannons were fired. When school let out, high school students paraded in the streets with drums, whistles, and flags. In Amsterdam, there was a parade also. Realize all this is before November 11th, but it was not spontaneous. 2,000 Amsterdam residents of Italian descent marched through the streets to celebrate the victory and the recovery of the city of Trieste by the Italian government. The event had been planned for two weeks under the leadership of Pasquale de Meza. I've written about Mr. de Meza in the past. He um, ran a, a business on the a south side, ultimately founded a bank which existed on the north side of Amsterdam for a while. After the parade organized by Mr. de Meza, the marchers uh, went to a hall, Dolan Hall, where Pasquale de Meza addressed them in Italian. The mayor, Celie Conover, addressed the crowd, praising them as fighters and citizens. Dan also found that up in Johnstown, people there did wait until November 11th to celebrate the end of the war and held three parades. When news of the official signing on the 11th reached Johnstown, the fire whistle began blowing and people began gathering in the streets. By 5 a.m., 1,500 people had gathered for an informal parade. A planned official parade set off at 2 p.m., lasted for two hours. 7.30 in the evening, a band started another parade on Main Street and ended up on William Street, where people danced to the music for hours. Gloversville planned thoroughly for its November 11th parade with the front page of the Morning Herald newspaper, November 9th, giving detailed instructions uh, for the parade. The November 11th parade was to begin two hours after the fire bell on City Hall signaled the Germans had signed the armistice. Marchers from veterans groups, soldiers on leave, Boy Scouts, fraternal organizations, post office, factories, city hall, all were in the parade. And that information from uh, uh, Dan Weaver, and congratulations to him, 
it was uh, all unknown to me. He did a lot of work coming up with uh, the, how the Mohawk Valley uh, observed in celebrations the end of uh, World War One. Back to my column, which actually ends up being more of a somewhat of a chronology of uh, the war in the Amsterdam area. A wartime atmosphere had existed in the Mohawk Valley starting in 1916, according to historian Hugh Donlin. When Amsterdam's Company H of the National Guard left for service along the southern border during the Mexican Revolution, kind of uh, sounds like a modern thought, does it not? American troops going to the southern border, the border with Mexico. It wasn't World War I, but uh, they were, in particular, I think, were looking for the um, commando or bandit Pancho Villa uh, down in uh, south of the United States and also in Mexico. When Company H left for the Mexican border, members of the city's new Boy Scout troop escorted the soldiers at the local train station. When America declared war on Germany in April 1917, the scoutmaster of Troop 1, William Firth, pledged to Amsterdam Mayor James Klein that the scouts would help the city in any way possible. Troop 1 members planted gardens, sold produce at cost to help the war effort, the scouts sold war bonds, packed boxes for the Red Cross for shipment to soldiers, and even collected peach pits, which were used to make chemicals for gas masks. In August of 1917, the first local National Guard soldiers departed for training in Spartanburg, South Carolina. On September 8th, the first draftees left Amsterdam for Camp Devons, Massachusetts. And historian Donlin wrote, after that date, there were monthly send-offs for Camp Devons, Camp Dixon, New Jersey, and other reception centers. As many as 240 men left for the war in France every month. There were price increases and shortages on the home front. Trolley fares in Amsterdam climbed from one cent to a nickel, and electric power rates doubled. Coal shortages started in 1918, and some of the city's factories closed periodically. In January, the city fuel administrator seized a carload of coal passing through Amsterdam by rail for local consumption. Lacking coal for heat, the Amsterdam Free Library closed for eight weeks. Now we come to some specific names in connection with the deaths of World War I. A Marine named Floyd Henry Decro of Fonda was the first Montgomery County casualty in France, and he died in June 1918. So I think it's safe to say that all the casualties of World War I for uh, this little area I'm focusing on, Montgomery County in upstate New York, all of the deaths took place in 1918, the closing months of the war. The next fallen soldier was Raymond Smith of Canajoharie. The first man from Amsterdam killed was Matthew Cousins in August of 1918. Lieutenant James Bergen of National Guard Company H also died in the war, 
The news came a day after the armistice, and Bergen's name was given to American Legion Post 39 in Amsterdam. Post 701 was named for John Wisimersky, whose body was returned from France in 1921. Some people had the remains of their loved ones brought home uh, for, for burial, but many others, of course, were simply uh, buried in Belgium or in uh, France or el- elsewhere in the front. Troop 1 Scoutmaster Firth, remember that he was the, the fellow that promised the mayor of Amsterdam that the scouts would do anything they could to help in the war effort, William Firth. Well, he entered the U.S. Army in January 1918. His last letter home reported he was at a rest camp, but expected to be back in the trenches soon. Corporal Firth was killed in action October 12th in the Argonne Forest in northeastern France, one of tens of thousands of American casualties and allied offenses in the closing months of the conflict. And again, maybe I'll point this one at, at Dave for a bit. That, that was something I, you know, I didn't really grasp. You know, that I, I thought, oh, gee, it's almost the end of the war. There'll be, you know, we stop having casualties. The Americans really didn't have great numbers of casualties until just before the end of the war. Let's, I think, October and even in November. I, I'm, I admit, I'm completely lost on the history of it, Bob. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, the other combatants, the French and the and the British and the Italians and so forth, who lived over there, had lost thousands of of uh, troops before that. But though these last this last offensive, if you will, against the uh, against the Germans was what resulted in most of the uh, casualties from America. Retired Amsterdam High School principal Bert DeRose wrote that his uncle, Ralph Pagliaro, was killed by a German sniper in Belgium five days before the armistice. Near as we can tell, he was probably the last uh, fatality from World War I who came from Amsterdam. De Rose said, quote, My grandmother wore black for over 30 years. There were four Liberty Bond drives in Amsterdam to support the war effort. Over 15,000 Amsterdamians gave an estimated $383,000. The head of one of the big carpet mills, the Sanford Mills, carpet magnate John Sanford himself put up $700,000. Money collected that was not used at war's end, and I don't know if this had to do with the bond drive or just some other fund that they were uh, creating for soldiers who came from Amsterdam who were serving in the war, well, the money that was left over after the war's end led to creation of two parks in the city. One is still there, the West End Memorial Park. A Veterans Day observances are often uh, held there. There's a firearm sitting there uh, as you come into Amsterdam uh, from the west, uh, the west side, from the Fort Johnson Way. And then there was Cousins Park in the East End, which was popular playground, and they had concerts there and so forth. It's no longer a park. Um, it's been kind of industrialized, if you will. They've put some businesses down there. But Cousins Park was named in honor of Matthew Cousins, the first Amsterdam casualty of the Great War. So that's our look at the end of, of World War I, uh, both from my column and 
uh, from Dan Weaver's column on the on that topic. We'll have uh, more on this edition of the Historian's Podcast right after I remind you about our GoFundMe campaign, which helps keep the podcast going. Uh, we're well into the campaign for this year, and we're quite far from the goal. We really would appreciate it if you could uh, send us a donation. Uh, go to the following website, GoFundMe.com forward slash historians 2018 and uh, if you'd rather not donate online using your credit card uh, you can instead make out a check to me bob cudmore and send it to bob cudmore 125 horseman drive scotia new york 12302 on this edition of the historians podcast i'm uh, talking about some stories about the uh, Mohawk Valley. Uh, joining me here is Dave Green. And Dave, now I have a topic near and dear to both of us. It's has to do with railroads. All right. I'll assume that I know as least as I did about milkweed. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, but this is a, a column which I wrote not too long ago, appeared in the uh, Daily Gazette, about the Mohawk Valley Limited of 1968, which was a steam train. Have you ever seen a steam engine, Dave? No, only in the old 1930 movies. Is that right? Well, I don't think so. I mean, at some point, did the government outlaw, literally outlaw them? No, I think they were just supplanted by diesel electric locomotives, Okay, you know, because they were better, they were cleaner. They were not as romantic somehow, nor as temperamental. I don't know if that's a good word to use. Well, I am thinking back a little farther into history, and I believe that's why the DeWitt Clinton that ran up and down mm -hmm. Central Avenue in, what, 1825? They, they, yeah. Yeah, they went out of business because of the ashes and oh, the, yeah. the cinders that would burn people's clothing. But again, there's something kind of romantic about it for you know people that love trains. Yeah, something. Other people, no, not so much. Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, this story about the Mohawk Valley Limited of 1968 um, begins as follows. In 1968, a steam locomotive-hauled passenger train had not passed through the Mohawk Valley for 17 years. So I guess it would be like 1951, what was then the New York Central stopped using steam locomotives. They went to diesel locomotives. Therefore, in 1968, when they're going to have this steam excursion, rail fans were ecstatic and the general public somewhat interested on Saturday morning, October 12th, when a 19-car excursion train was first pulled by an electric locomotive from Grand Central Station in New York City north uh, to the rail yards at Croton Harmon. In fact, I go to New York City from time to time, and that's one of the stops. And I always like that Croton Harmon stop, Dave, because it is a big rail yard. You see all kinds of trains lined up, and mainly passenger cars, because it's uh, where they put a lot of the trains that uh, are used by the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, I believe it's called, better known as the MTA. They have an MTA in New York City in addition to Boston, you know. Uh, 
I don't want to sidetrack you here, Bob. But what you, Track is a good thing there. To say. When, when you pull into the yard and you're not even thinking about it, all of a sudden this fascination yep. kicks in as to, wow, look at this place. Yeah. You know? And it's, you think, maybe it's because nobody ever invites you there. <laughs> that could be. And I notice that people, when the train stops, always get on and off, but just a few. <clears throat> and I kind of came to the conclusion that, Sometimes the people getting on and off are workers there, and then they're taking this train that I'm on, you know, to the next stop to go home or something like that. Mm-hmm. Waiting at Croton Harmon, October 12th, 1968, was a Berkshire class steam locomotive number 759, which had hauled freight for the Nickel Plate Road in its prime. I couldn't find the nickel plate road on a map. I mean, I could, but I haven't. <laughs> but it's out there sort of in the in the Middle West. Coupled to the excursion's passenger cars, number 759 was soon chugging north toward Albany's Union Station, which itself was slated to close down in a couple of months. It's 1968. The railroads are kind of in decline, at least as far as passenger services is concerned. And by the way, this is so much more fascinating than driving the Northway or the Thruway north and south. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, the Berkshire class of steam engines was named, as you might expect, for the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts, where they were used in the hilly Boston to Albany run. Berkshire locomotives had two forward wheels, eight driver wheels, and four trailing wheels. Berkshire engines were at first manufactured by Alco, American Locomotive Company, in Schenectady, but in long gone from Schenectady, but in Schenectady once. Later models, including number 759, which was built in 1944, were made at the, I believe they call it Lima, a Lima Locomotive Works in Lima, Ohio. And the man who put this whole thing together was Ross Rowland, a commodities broker in New York. I think it's safe to assume a man of some means. He was at the throttle of 759 when it arrived in Albany in 1968. Rowland had founded the High Iron Company to organize a series of steam-powered passenger train excursions with the goal of maintaining steam engines on the main lines of the railroads in the eastern United States. Over a 1,000 passengers had paid $37.95 each for the round trip from New York City to Niagara Falls on the Mohawk Valley Limited. The train's arrival in Albany was covered by the Sunday Times Union, and the father of a young Amsterdam rail fan, our Frequent correspondent Emil Suda saw the story. Emil's dad saw the story. They had missed the train going west through Amsterdam, but decided to watch it Sunday on the return trip. What a fine autumn day it was, sunny and warm, wrote Emil Suda. As the hour came and went, it appeared the train was running late. I was able to find out. I mean, a late train is hardly an unusual thing, but... For this particular train, they had to slow down for passing trains, and they had to make unscheduled stops for water and coal. I mean, the railroad really wasn't set up for coal-fired steam engines anymore. Emil Suda said there were a few others on hand at dusk uh, was coming in, 
the old downtown Amsterdam train station, the Mohawk Valley Limited appeared and rumbled down the track, not even slowing down for the onlookers who gathered. Regardless, Emil wrote, it was a sight. Seeing those four main drivers of the engine roll along and the coaches going by, and of course, seeing some cinders fall to the ground from the smokestack. There was a private car up front carrying rail dignitaries. The railroad wasn't the New York Central anymore. It had just become the Penn Central, a merger of the Pennsylvania Railroad and the New York uh, Central that was plagued with uh, financial problems. Also, a U.S. senator was on board, a man named Frank Moss, Democrat from Utah. Uh, He was a member of the Senate committee looking into the decline of uh, passenger rail service in America. In an article on the Mohawk Valley Limited's visit to Rochester, reporter John McLaughlin in the Democrat and Chronicle wrote that grown men and women, grown men and women, he said, actually stuck their heads out of open windows on the train with goggles so they could smell the smoke. The goggles protected against cinders, which could cause eye injury. So, Dave, this speaks to your story about the DeWitt Clinton. Yeah, the the stupid things we do as adults, though. <laughs> I know. Well, I guess that's what really kind of intrigued this reporter. I mean, he, maybe he could see like a little kid doing that, but these, these grown-ups wanted to stick their head out. Ah, uh, the greatest thing they did that day, Bob. <laughs> well, it was. It smelled. And also, I don't know if you noticed when I went by, because we're running toward the end of the podcast, the trip cost $37.95. I'm trying to determine in my own little brain whether that was a lot of money then for what it was, or was that really a bargain? What, what year? 1968. Mm, all right. So probably about a $200 ticket, maybe, by today's standards. Yeah, that could be. We don't know what today's standards are. But, but anyway, they well, they went up to Niagara Falls and... And came back. Now, what happened? And I asked you if you'd ever seen a steam engine. And I don't, I've been somewhere, like some museum where I saw a steam engine, but I've never been to the big one, which is called Steamtown National Historic Site. It's in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And that's where you can find Locomotive 759 today. Right off of I 81, because the last time you mentioned it, I Googled it. Oh, did they, you? They have their own exit. Is that for Steamtown? Yeah, for Steamtown. Yeah. And I guess local locomotive 759 used to pull uh, trains down there and so forth, but they, they stopped doing that with it and just sits there. And one final point, Emil Suda, who's a model train enthusiast, has an O-gauge model of a Berkshire locomotive like the 759. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.